Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be discussing a topic on everybody's minds lately, which is the big tech crackdown, especially and specifically the crackdown on pro-life organizations. Now, I want to do something a little bit different on this show because we've seen a lot of discussion on the big tech crackdown and how that affects pro-life groups. We've seen a lot of discussion on how this is a reality that conservative groups across the board are facing. Uh, There's been a lot of reports, videos, articles published by LifeSite News on this exact subject. I want to take a slightly different tack, just because I haven't really seen anybody do this yet. I'm going to be talking to uh, my friend Mark Harrington, uh, who is from Columbus, Ohio. He's a a pro-life activist who's been saving babies since before I was born. Uh, He runs Created Equal. He's the founder. Created Equal started in May 2011. I actually met Mark for the first time in 2010. Some of you might remember he's been on this show before to talk about the kind of outreach that Created Equal does. And I was having some discussions with him earlier this year on how pro-life organizations should respond to big tech, how we should make sure that our organizations are kept secure. And I was thinking that a lot of other people might find it helpful uh, to hear to some practical tips and some practical discussion on what we need to do uh, to ensure that our organizations are secure when the big tech crackdown, when the big tech purge comes. So without further introduction by me, I'm welcoming back Mark Harrington of Created Equal to talk about how your pro-life group can survive the purge and survive in an age of big tech censorship. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, maybe uh, just for starters, um, can you kind of describe for our listeners how you see uh, the coming big tech crackdown? We saw articles come out with lists in them from abortion rights groups almost immediately after the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, trying to insinuate that, you know, anti-abortion groups had something to do with it or were heavily involved. How do you see this unfolding over the next six months to a year? Well, Jonathan, this is something that we've been seeing, you know, coming for years. And I've been warning many people in the pro-life movement who are heavily invested in social media, that we need to make a pivot here, that we've got to plan for the future because this was inevitable, this crackdown. Uh, We had seen it coming with censorship, uh, nothing like what we had after the election, but it was coming. And I was telling people we need to figure out something uh, other than social media or at least alternatives to it. So when the election came and they, they started censoring, censoring President Trump's tweets, and then after the uh, riots on January 6th, I mean, it just came full bloom. And uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard, but they shouldn't have been because there were a lot of people like me warning them. Now, it's interesting. There's a couple of different things I, I want to pursue there. But first and foremost, uh, like your organization uh, created equal. Uh, is very similar to to what uh, the organization I work for, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, does, which is we're in the public square and we're doing outreach with abortion victim photography. We're having face-to-face conversations or these days mask-to-face. But a lot of people have banked on the fact that the new the digital public square is the new public square, but the digital public square is privately owned. What does this mean for the pro-life movement? Because as you've pointed out, there's a lot of pro-life groups that are that are basically reliant on big tech to do their activism. Well, without naming groups, I mean, they've invested millions and millions of dollars building these platforms. And I think, unfortunately, now they're wed to them. They're tied to them. And it's going to be very hard for them to break free and go with another way of reaching people. 
I think they've wrongly concluded that they can change culture by reaching people electronically, online and on social media. We know that's not the case. I mean, they're mostly speaking to the choir, those who already agree with them. The tried and true way to change culture and bring about social reform has always been the public square. And that's something we've always focused on and will continue to do. Uh, you can't reach as many people as quickly, but you can get in front of the audiences that you need to be in front of, those who you need to change hearts and minds. And I'm, I'm just concerned that we still have not learned our lesson here and people are continuing on like nothing's happened. And uh, believe me, this is coming. I mean, they're going to shut us down before long. Yeah, no, and I agree with that. It's interesting because, you know, you have you have a podcast. Created Equal has quite quite a large following on YouTube and on social media. I have a, a decent following on Facebook for the things that I write and the podcasts that I produce. So is it your assumption then that at a certain point this is all just going to go away and we should enjoy it while we can, but at some point it's just going to get shut down? Well, we've always used social media to educate and train uh, pro-lifers. Uh, we've never really used it as a means of changing people's opinion on abortion. Uh, so because we were never really invested in social media, we're not threatened by the censorship because we've always looked to the public square. When people said, oh, we just need to move to Gab or MeWe or one of these other, Parler, well, we found out how that worked out. Yeah. They shut Parler down. I know that they're back online right now, but we need to take a serious look at this. And I'm not telling people that we should totally divest from social media. I think there's value there in communicating to our people, to pro-lifers, educating, training, and our donors uh, what we're doing, but we cannot use it as a means of social reform. Uh, it, to me, it was, a, it was trying to win on the cheap. I mean, it looked like an easy, fast way of reaching people, but the problem is the gatekeepers controlled access to those people, and all they had to do was say, we're going to shut you down, and then we're left, you know, with, uh, with no other options. So I'm calling on my colleagues to seriously look at changing our approach and go back to what I call the tried and true way, which is the public square. So let's talk a uh, step-by-step because uh, I had a conversation with you last month when, when uh, there was a whole bunch of us together in Chicago to remember the life of, of Joe Scheidler. And we were talking about uh, what, what are some practical steps that different pro-life organizations can take to protect themselves? Because it's kind of interesting. Uh, I know a lot of pro-life uh, leaders in Canada and the U.S. were a lot older than me. And, and you know, 10 years ago, they were talking to us about, uh, you know, how do we how do we get on social media? How do we start using, you know, electronic databases and all that? And, and, and I, I kind of think it's funny because at some point we might be going back to to the pro-life leaders who built up the physical lists and the physical address books and, and trying to figure out how to how to do things the old way once again. So. How would you, what are some practical steps that you've started to take at Create Equal and that you would advise other people to take to ensure that that when when the big tech crackdown does totally unfold, that we can still reach the culture, we can still get out there in the public square, we can still change hearts and minds? I've been exhorting people to take two steps. The first is just to survive the purge. That is to get through it. Right now, they're going after uh, pro-life groups, conservatives, anybody associated even indirectly with Donald Trump, you know, which is a broad brush, but just to survive it, get through it. And then on the other end of it, we've got to do things to protect ourselves and our platforms, our websites and so forth. So 
The first thing is just to evaluate all of your vulnerabilities. And the first thing to look at is your URL, some of your website address. Where where is that uh, registered first? Mm-hmm. If it's with you know GoDaddy or Namecheap or one of these uh, you know these big companies, it's vulnerable because all it would take would be someone to call up or a campaign launched against that uh, against you uh, your URL to that company to say you're, you're, you're involved in hate speech or something and they'll cancel you and you'll lose that URL. So we're now in the, in the middle of transferring the registrations of our URLs to safer places. And ironically, those aren't in the United States, believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, there are <laughs> other places around the world that uh, you wouldn't consider them being places where free speech would reign, but we're trying to re-register uh, the URL. So I think that's the first step. Your website, your URL, those are gonna, those could be vulnerable to uh, the cancel culture. So besides moving that offline, are you doing anything to sort of ensure that you get to stay on social media as long as possible? I, I, I wonder if you've had the same problem we've had at CCBR where anything with a picture of an aborted baby um, we're getting threats now that they're going to pull us offline, and they've been doing that for years. And and same thing with YouTube. We had a, we had a video of an abortion procedure that was racking up hundreds of thousands of views. We actually had comments underneath it that people sort of searching for for information on abortion were finding this video, and three or four people commented right underneath, "Look, I I was on my way to Planned Parenthood. I googled this. I'm not going anymore." And so that video probably got sort of deep sixed. Do you plan to just use these platforms as long as possible? Or are you setting th- uh, up account? on, you know, when you say me, we, gab, all of these things, are you setting up alternative accounts with alternative networks? Yes, we are. So we are transitioning to those other accounts, but we're keeping our Facebook page and, and Twitter and so forth. And are we changing what we're doing? Not really. Uh, we're not out to, you know, provoke them. So we're not going to do things that would, uh, you know, bring them, uh, bring undue attention to what we're doing. In other words, you know, we're going to continue to show victim photography and pictures of abortion, but, you know, we're not going to do it in a way that we know might get us knocked off Facebook. It's a matter of being wise as a serpent. We want to keep those platforms as long as possible, but being, we need to be transferring our social media platforms uh, to, to other ones that uh, I think are going to be more friendly. Uh, but the more, more important thing is just doing the things to protect the total cancellation of, you know, the ministry, which, you know, our URLs are important, our websites, where do, where do we uh, host those? Are they on safe servers? Uh, do we need to create our, uh, and have our own servers in-house? Uh, you know, what happened to Parler, they were using Amazon servers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't use those types of servers these days, or you're just going to get shut down. So we are looking at uh, bringing everything in-house when it comes to uh, our web hosting. Besides web hosting, if you look at vulnerabilities, and I'm obviously particularly interested in this because as an outreach activist organization as well, uh, my temptation at first when this was happening was to kind of shrug it off because 
again, uh, you use a lot of the same projects that we do. And so our projects are designed to get around the gatekeepers to begin with. Right. Um, it's so when when the media shows up, they can lie about abortion all they want. But if they want to cover the controversy, they're going to have to take a picture of the pictures. And, you know, we win anyway. You know, we had a TV reporter once condemn us while keeping our, our, our picture of an aborted baby visible for a full 30, 30 to 60 seconds. Right. We couldn't have paid for that advertising and that kind of exp- kind of exposure. So at first I kind of shrugged it off. But besides just getting kicked off, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and all those sorts of things, what other vulnerabilities do you think could happen? Because watching, you know, Parler get spiked, watching uh, what happened to Donald Trump was interesting because, you know, suddenly there was banks that wouldn't deal with him. You had all these major institutions basically saying, yeah, we're unpersoning Donald Trump. And whatever whatever listeners think about the actions that were taken, it was a very clear list of examples of what could happen to, to any of us. And anybody who's been watching closely knows that what we, what our organizations do is considered hate speech by progressives. Most of our views that would have been considered boring 25 years ago, same thing. What other vulnerabilities do you suspect could be sort of lurking in the background? I've mentioned the, the, the main ones that I think is your URL and your registration of the URL and your website hosting. Those are two primary things, and those are easy to fix right away. Uh, the other ones are a little more difficult. And you know, in the states here, we have two uh, basic two things that are happening. The Biden administration has already said they are uh, beginning a, uh, a commission within the White House to investigate what they call domestic terrorism uh, because of the January 6 riots. And you also have a bill that's being introduced in Congress to also look into that. And that means to me that they're going to be listening in, that they're going to be monitoring or surveilling uh, people like myself and other pro-life activists and conservative Christians across America. And so what we're doing is we're looking at encrypting our email. Uh, so mm-hmm. our email cannot be uh, read by, you know, anyone who might try to surveil the government or others. Uh, text, texting encryption, going to uh, text uh, providers like Signal, which allows you to encrypt your text messages. Uh, Beyond that, when it comes to financial things, like where do you do your banking? uh, Is that going to be a vulnerability? That's a tough one because you've got, you know, your your donations and your your support and all that going into a bank account somewhere, you know, and that company could come under pressure from cancel culture. Uh, So you got to look at all of your financial processes and everything and who you're dealing with and see if those are safe. Uh, those are bigger things that need to be done, I think, long term. Right now, I don't believe those are uh, vulnerable per se, but I don't think this is going to get any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the next four years, at least here in the States, it's going to get much worse. And we need to start making plans to transition away from companies that are vulnerable to this kind of cancer culture. And it's interesting because I'd love to know what you, your view of not just the next four years, but let's say the next 10 are, because I know uh, we've both interviewed uh, Rod Dreher on our podcast. He, he wrote the book, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Live Not By Lies, which is a manual for Christian dissidents. And he kind of lays out the way he sees the future unfolding, which is sort of a social credit system, constant tracking, life becomes increasingly difficult for Christians. What's your view on how the next five to ten years goes? Yeah, I kind of agree with Rod. I mean, I think that we're we're in that uh, now uh, in in America, and of course in Canada, it's worse. You know, so soft totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to be getting to think of the old school ways of communicating, and that's by word of mouth. <laughs> you know. 
I don't know if we're going to use uh, messengers like pigeons or anything like that. We're going to be writing, you know, snail <laughs> mail beyond before long. But I think we're already beginning to have meetings in our own home with like-minded Christians to kind of figure it out. You know, if things continue to get worse, what do we do? Uh, I'm not saying we just hunker down, you know, and head to the hills and just wait it out. That's not what we do. But we need to learn to survive this and thrive in it. And I don't think uh, putting all our eggs in the online basket is going to work. Uh, we're going to have to get back to the old school ways of doing things before we had the Internet. Another question I've, I've been thinking about a lot is how big of a deal is that? So once we've accepted that discrimination will take place, because it's already occurring, it will continue to occur, it will get worse. Um, once once you accept that the Internet is not going to be uh, an avenue for us to essentially be able to reach millions of people on the cheap. It's why small pro-life startups have managed to reach you know huge numbers of people is because there was different avenues available. We've already seen that start to disappear anyhow with shadow banning, with them you know reducing or eliminating your ability to reach the people that have chosen to follow you, etc. When I first went on a trip to Florida to do outreach, which uh, you were running that project at the time, that was the first time we met, so that's 11 years ago now. I was the one who first set up CCBR social media accounts. And I know Stephanie Gray, who was running CCBR at the time, said to me, you know, we should get some, uh, we should get on social media. So it wasn't that long ago that the vast majority of the pro-life movement wasn't using the internet and wasn't reliant on the internet to do what we do. So while accepting the fact that there's this new economy, there's this new digital square that we might get pushed out of, on an encouraging note, how big of a deal is that to doing what we do? Because you did pro-life work for, for you know, 15 to 20 years before um, th th this was, was a central part of activism. And you guys accomplished an unbelievable amount of stuff. Yeah, I think we've been spoiled by, the, by social media. I think that we've, uh, it's been an easy way to reach a lot of people. And, you know, we talk about keyboard activists. Uh, there's nothing wrong with working through the Internet and reaching people. But when you rely entirely on that to replace, you know, the tried and true way of reaching people, which is face to face on a college campus or in a public square, then, I, I you know, that's just a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. So we really ne have never really changed our approach. We're just going to double down on it now and, and spend more time uh, reaching people the traditional way. What we won't do is self-censor. We're not going to change right. what we do. Uh, in fact, we're going we're gonna to ramp it up if we can uh, and, and do more of what we had been doing. You know, that means overpass outreaches, college outreach, high school outreach, airplane tow banners, trucks, billboard trucks, anything to leapfrog the media. And it used to be the mass media, television media. Now it's mm -hmm. going to social media. We've got to right. figure out a way to reach people, uh, despite the fact that we don't have access to these forms like we used to. So to me, it hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, we've always been a rescue mission, you know, mm -hmm. we've always been one-on-one -on -one to save individual lives, change hearts and minds individually. We've never looked at it like we can change it all at once with one fell swoop, like uh, social media. I think people were lured into believing that was going to be the way. Uh, it's the way it's always been done, you know, and that is one-on-one, -on -one, and in small groups. And that's the way it's going to have to be done going forward.
the one other thing about about digital activism, so to speak, is there's there's some versions that are quantifiable. So the the Human Coalition does a phenomenal job connecting women to to local resource centers and crisis pregnancy centers, and they can actually track when a baby is safe from abortion. Um, I love live actions abortion um, videos. Uh, which, again, with their face-to-face activism on iPads, which we've used on campuses as well, are, are quite effective. But um, during the first COVID shutdown last year, uh, we kind of went on TikTok where one of, some of our videos racked up millions of views. And we did all this digital outreach while we weren't allowed back out into the streets with our signs. And our conclusion at the end of it was, despite how impressive a lot of our numbers looked, right? Look, any pro-life group wants to have impressive numbers to show for their work, right? Millions of views and millions of impressions and all those sorts of things. But the difficulty with it was I couldn't determine where it made an impact. Like, I had no idea if the people who are watching the TikTok videos or looking at the posts or whatever had shifted their views on abortion at all. And so... While uh, we have solid data, you know, created equal, partnered with with CCBR on determining the impact of abortion victim photography by commissioning polling and then commissioning an actual expert on statistics to produce a report on what the effectiveness was. So when I say CCBR has achieved X number of views of abortion victim photography, I can tell you, um, you know, to, to the margin of error, what the impact of that was. But with digital activism, I also find that while the numbers look impressive, it's very difficult to determine whether or not you actually shifted anybody's mind, especially absent uh, an interactive face-to-face conversation or, or or interaction. What are your thoughts on the difference between, like, the digital public square seems to me also just to be a bit mysterious and unreliable in terms of what our actual cultural impact is? Very hard to quantify, no question about it where face-to-face meetings are easily quantifiable. I mean, anecdotal yeah. evidence, we can overwhelm people with the testimonies of people that have changed their minds or chosen not to commit an abortion. And we're going to be doubling down on that. You guys have pioneered more than anybody in the world the going the, the, the door-to-door uh, postcard, putting those out. So we're, going to, we're going back to doing a lot of that. Uh, going door to door, going, you know, like you would for a, a political campaign to canvas with postcards that have abortion victims on them and just meeting people on their own homes or, you know, in front of their house. Uh, we're, we're expanding our truck, our billboard trucks and our airplane tow banners and, and everything we can do. Overpasses are hugely effective. Mm-hmm. In, in our city alone, within about two hours, we get 20,000 views yeah wow uh, and these are real live eyeballs looking at yep. abortion victims in the public square and we reach massive amounts of people doing it that way and we can quantify it by knowing how many people saw the images and we know there's going to be a, a percentage of those who change their minds we just do and so uh to us i think it's a winning strategy and it's been like i say i mean historically social reformers have always done it this way we've just gotten spoiled with social media but those days are now over when we look back at at pro life history and i've always been very interested in the the entire history of the pro life movement which where you've got the the pre roe movement that dr daniel k williams describes in his book defenders of the unborn then you have the post roe movement where activism was of course uh, largely pioneered by by uh, our, our our mutual friend uh, Joe Scheidler, the godfather of pro life direct action, and then many others. You have the Operation Rescue Period, which which you and many others were a part of. 
And then looking at it from that perspective, it, it, it seems like this social media period was actually it's going to look like a, a decade long blip in the rearview mirror. That for a decade, we had access to all of the same privately owned platforms that everybody else did. And then pro-lifers got kicked back off and had to resort to what they did before. From that perspective, sometimes I hear the apocalyptic tone from people about what are we going to do when we're off social media? And the answer is, well, what we've been doing for 50 years. What would your response to a pro-lifer who's panicked about getting kicked off be? They put their eggs in the wrong basket. I mean, we've relied on this uh, too much. You know, the pro-life movement is an activist movement. It's a street movement. It's a it's a public square mm. movement. Mm. It's been a protest movement, and it can it needs to continue to be that. I was very dismayed. Here's a perfect example, and I don't want to beat on them too badly, but the March for Life canceled this year because of fears of COVID, and you know the concerns over security in Washington D.C. I don't think they were founded well founded actually in that decision. And instead, they went virtual. I mean, I, I don't know. I had a real problem with that. How do you have a virtual march? I mean, we're relying way too much on our electronic communications to do things that historically we've done in person. I mean, it's just how do you rep- represent the babies virtually when the babies aren't dying virtually? I mean, they're dying. Real flesh and blood babies are dying every day, and we need to represent them in person. So to me... I think it's a good thing. I think people need to get out of their, you know, the way they've been doing things and start really thinking hard about changing uh, how they do things. I don't know if folks will do it, man. I mean, you know, they're all very heavily invested. They got a lot of money involved in these things and they raise gobs of money doing it too. And so I don't want to make it about that, but I'm hoping that people take a real honest look at where we are and start making plans to go back to the basics. Final question, just to kind of encourage people, because, you know, I get your emails and I watch the videos from Created Equal, especially the videos. Whenever you put out a video about, uh, you know, an interaction outside an abortion clinic, I watch it because I know it's going to be an encouraging video. And so there's a lot of people, I think, um, who are quite despairing when they see these big tech shutdowns and and stuff like that. But in reality, good things are done every day by good people. Babies are saved every day. You know, moms receive help every day. Maybe just share just from the last month or so, you know, your favorite story about making a real impact in front of the clinics, which is where we can be. It's where we can make an impact. And, and whether or not we can, you know, last on Twitter or Facebook has nothing to do with, with what we can actually accomplish in real life. Well, it's interesting because we just pulled our staff to ask which is their most most uh, the, the outreach that they prefer the most and they said going to the abortion centers yeah and the reason for that is because it's tangible because they meet real life people who are thinking about killing their babies and we have been very successful recently in rescuing children from those abortion centers uh it, you know it's not virtual. It's not something, you know, you talk to a kid on a college campus who might change his mind, but you don't know down the road if that will actually lead to a saved life or a life that will be lived defending babies. So I tell people continue to do what we've done historically, and that is to go to the abortion centers, go to the public square, because we always walk away, you know, with some type of encouragement that we had an impact. It's right there in front of us. On that note, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss this with us. God bless you and thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Mark Harrington of Created Equal. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We do hope that you will like and subscribe, whether you're listening to this on YouTube or any other podcast catcher. Head over to LifeSightNews.com, click on the podcast tab, and you can find our show there. You can listen to past shows, subscribe for future shows. We really do appreciate your time and support, and we hope you'll join us again next week.